Welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. I'm Lindsay Berman, a fourth-year medical student at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm Joanne Thomas, also a fourth-year medical student here at MCG. On today's episode, we will be discussing one of the most common conditions managed by pediatric ophthalmologists, amblyopia. To provide expertise in this area, we're delighted to have Dr. Stephanie Goey, who is a professor of ophthalmology here at Medical College of Georgia. Dr. Goey specializes in the medical and surgical management of pediatric ocular disorders. Welcome, Dr. Goey. Thanks for having me. To get us started, Dr. Goey, could you explain to the listeners what amblyopia is and why it is an important topic of discussion? Sure. Amblyopia refers to the decrease in vision that's caused by abnormal visual development during infancy and early childhood. Did you know that amblyopia is the leading cause of monocular vision loss? It affects 3 to 5% of children and can potentially result in permanent vision loss in nearly 3% of adults. Wow, I can see why this is an important topic for any medical provider who cares for children. That's right. It is critical that every child be screened for amblyopia. That's because children younger than the age of 7 are more likely to have a good response to treatment. Joanne, do you know what the recommendations are for vision screening? In general, I know that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Association for Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus recommend regular vision screening starting in infancy. Yes, in addition, the U.S. Preventative Ta- Services Task Force recommends vision screening at least once between the ages of 3 to 5 years old to look for amblyopia or its risk factors. So what if there are signs of amblyopia? Children who fail any of these screenings should be immediately referred to a pediatric ophthalmologist for further workup and treatment of amblyopia. Early recognition and referral during infancy and childhood are essential in preventing lifelong vision loss. Yes, that is really important. So let's dive into a clinical case to help our listeners better understand the diagnosis and management of amblyopia. Joanne, could you present our case? Sure thing. Our first patient in pediatric ophthalmology clinic is a four-year-old healthy girl who's referred to us by her pediatrician due to failing her recent vision screening during her well-child visit last week. The child was born full term and has been growing and developing well. Her parents were surprised about the results of the vision test because she has never complained of not seeing well. Her parents have only noticed that she is a bit clumsier than her other siblings. Upon further questioning, mom reports that she has noticed that the child's left eye looks lazy at times, and she squints to see the TV if she is watching from far away. Great case so far. But before we hear more about our patient, let's talk about the differential diagnosis for this patient. So here we have a four-year-old otherwise healthy girl referred by her pediatrician for failing a routine vision screening test. That's right. It was not actually the parent or a family member that requested the referral. However, parents are often the first to raise concerns about their child's vision. This can include complaints of difficulty seeing, an eye that seems to drift, or a constant head tilt. As I said earlier, it is critical that every young child's vision be routinely screened. Sometimes clinical symptoms can be so subtle that families may not even notice there is an abnormality present until the child is tested. That's a great point. So the differential diagnosis for a pediatric patient who fails a vision screening includes several things. First, the common causes would include refractive error, cataracts, and also any pathology of the cornea, retina, or optic nerve. Since many of our listeners may not be familiar with certain terms, 
Let's clarify what refractive error is. Refractive error is a problem with focusing light on the retina due to a misshapen eye, which leads to decreased visual acuity. Examples of refractive error include nearsightedness or myopia, farsightedness or hyperopia, and astigmatism. Great job. Other things to consider would be neurologic problems affecting the cerebral cortex or trauma to the visual pathway. So we defined amblyopia earlier as decreased vision caused by abnormal visual development in infancy and early childhood. How is it different from strabismus? In medical school, we often learn about these terms together, so it can be hard to differentiate them. Amblyopia is poor vision from lack of stimulation of the eye-brain connection. This results in decreased nerve connections in the occipital cortex, the part of the brain responsible for vision. Typically, amblyopia affects one eye due to abnormal visual development, while strabismus refers to any misalignment of the eyes. So that's when one eye turns inward, outward, upward, or downward, while the other eye remains focused, right? Exactly. In these situations, the eyes do not work together. So strabismus is one possible cause of amblyopia, right? That's correct. Strabismus can cause amblyopia, but strabismus does not always cause amblyopia. Okay, so amblyopia is poor vision in an eye because of disrupted development in early childhood, while strabismus is misalignment of the eye, which can sometimes lead to amblyopia. You got it. There are actually three types of amblyopia, which are named for their etiology. We've already identified one type, known as strabismic amblyopia. What's another type? Another type is refractive amblyopia. This type of amblyopia can result from the two eyes having very different glasses prescriptions. Correct. This is what we refer to as anisometropia. How does this occur, Joanne? Well, when the two eyes have significantly different refractive errors as measured by the glasses prescription, this will cause the child to favor one eye. So the one with the smaller glasses prescription is favored, while the other eye is ignored. The ignored eye can then develop amblyopia from lack of visual stimulation. Great job. Similarly, if one eye has significantly more astigmatism than the other, amblyopia can result in the eye with the worse astigmatism. Anisometropia and astigmatism fall under the category of refractive amblyopia. Could you clarify what exactly astigmatism is? Astigmatism usually occurs when the cornea, which is the front part of the eye, is misshapen. Usually, the eyeball is shaped like a soccer ball almost perfectly round. However, in some people, the eyeball can develop into the shape of a football. This is astigmatism, and it can cause blurry or distorted vision if uncorrected. Okay, so we have talked about strabismic amblyopia and refractive amblyopia, which includes anisometropia and astigmatism. What's the third type of amblyopia? The third and final category of amblyopia is deprivation amblyopia. Deprivation amblyopia is caused by any pathology that deprives the eye of stimulation, which prevents visual information from traveling through the eyeball to the retina and optic nerve in the back of the eye. Can you think of examples of deprivation amblyopia? This deprivation can occur from a congenital cataract that occludes light passage, or ptosis, also known as eyelid drooping, that can also occlude the eye. Great job. Deprivation amblyopia inhibits the visual experience of a child's eyes. If deprivation amblyopia is not treated early, these children may never learn to see well. This kind of amblyopia can also affect both eyes. So we have reviewed the three types of amblyopia, which are named for their etiology, refractive amblyopia, 
deprivation amblyopia, and strabismic amblyopia. Dr. Goey, could the physical exam help differentiate the different types of amblyopia? The physical examination is critical in differentiating the types of amblyopia, and this should include a vision assessment. A child with amblyopia usually ends up in the pediatric ophthalmology clinic after failing a vision screening at school or in their pediatrician's office, such as our patient today. This can happen at any age from infancy to early elementary school. So tell me about our patient's physical exam. On her visual assessment, her visual acuity is 2030 in the right eye and 2100 in the left eye. On physical exam, you notice that her left eye is deviated medially. On cover and uncover testing, when the right eye is covered, the left eye moves outward. There is no sign of ptosis or eyelid drooping. When shining a pen light on her pupils, the light is centered on the right eye, but decentered on the left eye. This is called an asymmetric corneal light reflex. Great exam. Let's talk a bit about each of the features you described. So our patient's right eye is 2030, which is better vision than her left eye at 2100. Lindsay, can you explain what these numbers mean? Sure. 2030 vision means that with her right eye, our patient must be 20 feet away to clearly see what a person with normal vision would see from 30 feet away. 2100 vision means that with her left eye, our patient must be 20 feet away to clearly see what a person with normal vision would see from 100 feet away. Exactly. To measure visual acuity in grown children and adults, we often start with the Snellen chart. You may have seen this with a big E on top. This lets us know if their vision in each eye is 2020, 2040, 2060, and so on. We would then use a foropter to measure their glasses prescription. This is the hanging tool that the eye doctor places against your face like a pair of binoculars, then goes through different lenses until you can see a clear image. This is when the tech or doctor asks the patient to choose the clearer image between one or two or three or four. So how would visual assessment change depending on the child's age or development? Great question. To measure visual acuity in children who are too young to know their letters, we use a picture chart instead of a Snellen chart. Common images such as a birthday cake, horse, and duck. As you can imagine, it can be difficult for kids to sit still in a foropter or be able to choose between one or two or three or four. So to measure the glasses prescription, we use loose lenses and a retinoscope instead of a foropter. These vision assessments allow us to diagnose refractive errors. So refractive amblyopia is diagnosed with a failed vision screening followed by finding the glasses prescription using retinoscopy. So how exactly does retinoscopy work? Here's how we determine refractive error and astigmatism using retinoscopy and loose lenses. First, we dilate the child's eyes and then using a special handheld tool called a retinoscope, I will hold up a variety of lenses until the light from the retinoscope is neutralized. This takes time to master, but when done correctly, it will tell us the glasses prescription and show if anisometropia or astigmatism is present. What were the findings of our patient on retinoscopy? Using retinoscopy to find a glasses prescription for our patient, we discover that her right eye prescription is plus four and her left eye prescription is plus six. And how do you interpret these numbers? The numbers plus four and plus six are positive, which tells us that she is hyperopic, left much greater than right. In hyperopia, or farsightedness, the light is focused behind the retina. 
So the patient needs glasses to add light bending power to bring the image forward so it is focused on the retina. So hyperopia needs a positive prescription. In myopia or nearsightedness, then light is focused in front of the retina. So the patient would need glasses to subtract light bending power to push the image backward so it is focused on the retina. So myopia needs a negative prescription. Great job. So this patient sees 20-30 in her right eye, but only 20-100 in her left eye. And the two eyes have very different glasses prescriptions. As we mentioned earlier, this is called anisometropia, which simply means that her two eyes have significantly different refractive errors. These vision abnormalities could explain the parent's story that she seems to be clumsy and sometimes squints when watching TV. So the key to diagnosing refractive amblyopia is a failed vision screening followed by finding the glasses prescription using retinoscopy. That's right. Okay, so another good observation you mentioned about our patient's exam is that there is no ptosis. Why is that important? Ptosis typically develops as a person ages when the eyelid muscles stretch or weaken. This is usually cosmetic and does not affect the vision of the adult since vision is already mature. However, if ptosis is present in infancy or early childhood, there is a risk of deprivation amblyopia. That's correct. The drooping eyelid can cover part or all of the pupil and obstruct the visual axis, resulting in deprivation amblyopia. Dr. Goey, what about congenital cataracts? This can also result in deprivation amblyopia in infants. How does this typically present? These infants may end up in my office as a referral from their pediatrician that finds an abnormal red reflex on exam. Joanne, what is the proper way you should examine a child's red reflex? The red reflex is examined using the ophthalmoscope about one foot away from the child. You should first observe if there is symmetric brightness from each eye. If the red reflex is asymmetric, the child may have an ocular pathology such as a retinoblastoma or congenital cataracts. That's right. Congenital cataracts can be further examined using our portable slit lamp, since infants obviously cannot position themselves in a typical slit lamp. Lindsay, how does a slit lamp work? The slit lamp shines a beam of light on the eyeball while the doctor views the eye through a microscope. The doctor can manipulate the length, width, brightness, and angle of the light beam to focus on different structures and cellular details of the eye. Great job, ladies. So to summarize, Deprivation amblyopia is suspected when ptosis is present on visual inspection or congenital cataract or another opacity found on ophthalmoscopy or slit lamp exam. So based on this, for our patient, deprivation amblyopia is low on the differential diagnosis for our patient's condition. So what about the description of her eye looking lazy at times? On the exam, the child's left eye is deviated medially. This would be strabismus, right? Yes, that's right. As we mentioned before, strabismus is also often picked up by parents when they notice their child's eyes drifting out or in, especially at night when they are tired and have less energy to force their eyes to focus. So how does the cover-uncover test evaluate for strabismus? On exam, I can use the cover-uncover and alternating cover tests both at near vision and at far vision to break the child's focus and elicit their strabismus. We quantify strabismus objectively using prism diopters. This involves holding up a series of prisms to one of the child's eyes while doing the alternating cover test until the drifting is neutralized and no compensatory movement is seen. 
Our patient's exam shows us that her left eye is deviated inward. What's the formal name for this condition? This would be referred to as left esotropia. There are other types of strabismus named for the direction the affected eye is deviated. In exotropia, the eye is deviated outward. In hypertropia, the eye is deviated upward. And in hypotropia, the eye is deviated downward. So just to summarize, from our patient's history and physical exam, we have determined that she has two important contributors for her amblyopia. She has anisometropia, which is when the two eyes have different refractive errors or glasses prescriptions. This causes unequal focus between the two eyes. And she also has left esotropia, a type of strabismus, with her left eye deviated medially, which we confirmed on the cover-uncover test. Yes, exactly. As I continue to emphasize, any child who fails a vision screening at school or at their pediatrician's office should be referred to a pediatric ophthalmologist in a timely manner to evaluate for amblyopia. Intervention before the age of eight will help ensure that development of the eye-brain connections, which are necessary for healthy vision, form. For our patient in this case, her amblyopia has been recognized early enough at age four years to allow for time to appropriately intervene. This is because neural pathways are still being developed. So now that we've talked about the different types of amblyopia, what's the next step in regards to treatment? Once a cause for amblyopia is identified, we must provide correction and then force the eye-brain connections to be made in the weak eye. The bottom line of treating amblyopia is forcing the child to use their affected or bad eye by impairing the developed or good eye. Do you mean patching the eye? Yes. There are actually two main methods, patching and atropine eye drops. Adhesive eye patches work well by covering the good eye, and atropine eye drops can be used in conjunction with patching to blur the vision in the good eye. So how do patching and atropine eye drops improve the vision? In every cause of amblyopia, patching is necessary to force the child to exercise the affected eye. To help with compliance, it is important to educate the families and patients why patching is helpful. Parents may at first be confused of why the good eye is patched since this would impair vision even more. Why do you think we do that, Lindsay? Well, we patch the good eye so the child has no choice but to exercise the impaired eye, building those eye-brain connections. If parents accidentally patch the bad eye, the patient will continue using the good eye as they always have, while the bad eye is now completely occluded from visual stimulation and can further decline. That's right. As I mentioned, sometimes we use atropine drops in conjunction with patching to blur the vision in the good eye. Atropine works by dilating the pupil, which results in blurry vision. These are usually used in conjunction with patching. They can help ensure the use of the impaired eye, especially in infants and younger children who might try to remove the patch. So how long does a child need to keep the patch on? That seems challenging for our young ones. We usually recommend patching for two to six hours per day, depending on the severity of amblyopia and the age of the child. A question we often get in clinic is, how can I help my child get better and see faster? Patch occlusion must be monitored carefully to make sure there is effective patching and that the child can't peek around the patch. But most important thing is to remember that there is no exact timeline. We have to be persistent and patient, and we will continue to monitor to make sure everything is going in the right direction. So what about glasses? It is essential to correct the refractive error using glasses. The glasses could also help with strabismus as the vision improves. 
Parents and patients are counseled to always use the glasses while the child is awake and to patch the good eye under the glasses. So when is surgical intervention necessary? So for a patient like ours, we would first try patching and glasses alone for a while to see if vision and the esotropia improve. If the strabismus persists despite treating the amblyopia, we would want to explore surgical correction. If deprivation amblyopia is found, the child must undergo ptosis repair or cataract extraction to remove the obstruction. If strabismic amblyopia is detected, the child can benefit from eye muscle surgery, which changes the insertion point of one or more of the eye muscles so that the two eyes are correctly aligned. It is important to remember that if amblyopia is present, we should first treat the amblyopia with patching or atropine drops before continuing to surgery. We mentioned that the key age for intervention is before the age of 8 years old. What are the possible risks and complications if intervention is delayed? The main complication is irreversible and permanent lifelong decrease in vision. This could affect an individual's overall development, especially in the area of learning and reading. There will be a lifelong monocular vision deficit in the amblyopic eye. Binocular vision will also be impaired, leading to decreased stereoacuity, also known as depth perception. That's important to know. This makes early recognition and intervention so important to prevent permanent vision loss for these children. What a great discussion today, but it's already time to start wrapping up our episode. Let's summarize the key points we discussed today. Sure, I'll get us started. Amblyopia refers to the decrease in vision that is caused by abnormal visual development during infancy and early childhood. It is the leading cause of monocular vision loss. There are three types of amblyopia, and I have a great acronym to remember the types. S-O-S. The first S stands for spectacles, or glasses, and reminds us of refractive amblyopia, which can be caused by anisometropia or astigmatism. The O stands for occlusion, which reminds us of deprivation amblyopia, where a pathology such as a congenital cataract or ptosis blocks light from entering the eye and deprives the brain of visual stimulation. The last S stands for strabismus, which obviously reminds us that strabismus, or eye misalignment, which can often lead to amblyopia. What a great acronym! Next, remember that all children should get routine vision screening at their well-child exams. If there is any suspicion for vision impairment, a referral to a pediatric ophthalmologist for formal evaluation is imperative for proper diagnosis and early intervention. Typically, non-invasive treatment, including patching and glasses, is the first step to treating all types of amblyopia. However, surgical intervention should be explored if strabismus does not improve with patching and if causes of deprivation amblyopia, such as ptosis and congenital cataract, are present. It's extremely important that any child who fails a vision screening at school or at their pediatrician's office be referred to a pediatric ophthalmologist in a timely manner so we can diagnose amblyopia, intervene before the age of 8, and ensure they develop the eye-brain connections necessary for healthy vision. Thank you, Dr. Goey, for joining Joanne and me for this important discussion today. Thank you for inviting me. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang for contributing to today's episode. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. 
and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.